just three months left until 2024. Now a look at how candidates plan to counter communist China. Does President Biden's push for green energy conflict with his China policy? There are Chinese companies that can take advantage of those uh, subsidies. Plus, a 10-year-old's curiosity stumps a presidential hopeful during a campaign event. I have a question, sir. Oh, that's a tough, that's like the toughest question all day. What's this young voter asking? And is China at war with the U.S.? The best way to have to gain um, all the fruits of war uh, is without having a war. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. The race for the 2024 White House is on, and presidential hopefuls are talking China. The majority of candidates say they'd counter the Chinese Communist Party if elected, including President Biden. Though he adds he would bolster the World Bank as well to support lending for climate change. And that's one of our main focuses heading into the G20, delivering on an agenda of fundamentally reshaping and scaling up the multilateral development banks, especially the World Bank and the IMF. The question is, can fighting climate change and countering China work at the same time? The administration is pushing hard for America's green energy transition. Having pledged to cut carbon emissions in half by 2030 and hit zero emissions by 2050. But with China dominating green energy industries, some are wondering would America's green energy future depend on Beijing? China having a lock pretty much on a lot of the market for green technologies, whether it's electric vehicles, uh, wind turbines, wind magnets, solar panels. Putting things in perspective, oil cartels have a lot of say in the global economy. That's because they pump 40 to 60 percent of the world's oil. But even that pales in front of China's near monopoly on clean energy supply chains. Up to 80 percent of the solar panels are being produced in China. China manufactures about 90 percent of the so-called polysilicon for solar modules, refines uh, over 50 percent of the world's lithium for lithium batteries, as it, and is expanding that capacity. Lithium-ion batteries are among the most important components in electric cars, and China dominates the supply chain for them. Well, roughly 40% of the uh, electric vehicles produced in the world are being produced in China. China also controls 80% of battery raw material refining. It also supplies 50% of chemical lithium and 70% of synthetic graphite. Experts estimate it would take the U.S. over 10 years to catch up. No amount of uh, policy exhortations or subsidies that will quickly change that fact because these are extraordinarily big industries take a long time to build. China also has a commanding hold on nickel and cobalt, minerals essential for EV battery components. It's the world's largest refiner of these minerals and supplies up to 70 percent of these minerals. Experts are concerned, given the amount, how much Beijing could leverage them. If we're dependent on them, that means you know, the cards are in their hand. Uh, and what, again, what are they going to demand? Are they going to demand uh, reduction in arms sales to Taiwan, or they can re demand uh, the U.S. Navy pull out of the Western Pacific. Beijing seems to be clear about what cards it holds. In a 2020 speech, Chinese leader Xi Jinping said the country must tighten international production chain's dependence on China, thereby forming a powerful countermeasure against foreigners who would artificially cut off supplies to China. Over in the U.S., Biden has been trying to beef up domestic green manufacturing. He signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law last year, handing out hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies to boost clean energy manufacturing at home. 
Republicans have repeatedly tried to repeal key parts of the Inflation Reduction Act, including the Speaker of the House now. Taking credit for the billions of dollars in private investments and thousands of jobs coming into their states. But who's reaping the most benefit? An analysis from the Wall Street Journal says that so far, foreign companies are among the biggest winners. There are certain uh, uh, domestic companies that are taking advantage of the, uh, of the subsidies, but the way the law is written, there are Chinese companies that can take advantage of those uh, subsidies, Chinese solar companies that can take advantage of them. The law spurred at least $110 billion investment dollars in clean energy projects. But over 60% of the spending involves foreign companies, including China. Over $8 billion investment dollars sparked by the law come from companies with deep ties to China. It remains to be seen if Biden can combine the two things, countering China and fighting climate change with China's help. At a campaign event in Hampton, New Hampshire, GOP presidential hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy took a question from a 10-year-old. She asked about Taiwan and China. Take a look. I have a question, sir. I'm excited for it. Hi. Um, when you're president, what are you going to do about, like, what are you going to do when China attacks Taiwan? Oh, that's a tough, that's like the toughest question all day. Came from, what's your, what's your, what's your name? Grace. Grace, and how old are you? Ten. Let's give Grace a round of applause. I love that. I respect that. So my top job is, I've got a few elements of my foreign policy, and it relates to the direct answer to your question. Declare economic independence from China, including Taiwan. Make sure that we don't start World War III and actually advance American interests. I'm saying that we reject the one-China policy and strategic ambiguity. We will defend Taiwan, and then after we achieve semiconductor independence, we resume strategic ambiguity, our current position. How are the other presidential candidates handling the China issue, and what message should the U.S. be sending to China? To discuss this, we spoke with the author of The China Crisis. James Gari, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. Thanks, Stephanie. Good to be here. The 2024 election cycle is ramping up. We recently heard from candidates at the first GOP debate. One area they seemed to agree on was China or the China threat. Which candidate do you think laid out the strongest case when it comes to China and how the U.S. should deal with it? I think it's probably Vivica Ramaswamy. I think he was the, the most clear. And uh, DeSantis also had a uh, you know, policy of, you know, an economic policy in terms of taxes and regulations. But I think Vivek Ramaswamy has the, has the best grasp on the relationship between China and the U.S. and China and its, and its, uh, its neighboring countries, especially India and, uh, and Taiwan. I don't agree with his, totally with his position on Taiwan, but he, at least he has laid it out in clear-cut terms. And James, switching gears a bit to the Democratic Party, RFK Jr. has been making headlines a lot. You recently said that when it comes to China, the Chinese cannot and do not want to compete with us militarily, suggesting that it's the U.S. pushing them in that direction. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's. I think he's dead wrong. I think China is. You know, there's a reason China's navy is larger than ours. It, it's not because they want to have great boat parades. It's because they want to compete with us 
first in the region, in the Asia-Pacific region, but they want to compete and protect their interests abroad. And on top of that, he also went on to say that when it comes to China, quote, they don't want war, they want peace and they want prosperity, and that cannot happen when there's a war. Your thoughts on that? Gosh, well, read the art of war. The, 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 the best way to have to gain um, all the fruits of war uh, is without having a war. That's the best way. And you do that by various tactics, whether it's importing fentanyl, um, whether it's taking your best talent through the you know, Confucian Institutes and the Thousand Talents programs, whether it's uh, buying up farmland in the U.S., um, prohibiting and controlling food supplies. There's all kinds of ways that China is at war with the U.S. So the fact that um, there's not a shooting war yet, they're certainly happy to incur uh, you know, our, seas, our sea lanes and our our airspace in Alaska with ships and planes and so forth. So I don't see any any real concrete way you can say that they're not in direct competition with us in every way that's possible. In fact, there was a book written in 1999, or I think it was by a couple of Chinese colonels, you know, you know unrestricted warfare. It's, it's the roadmap and it's the guidebook to doing so what they're doing right now. And James, given all that you just laid out when it comes to foreign policy in terms of China, how much is riding on who is in the Oval Office in the next term? I think everything's riding on it. Um, the, the fact is, is that uh, Vivek Ramaswamy had a terrific idea, which was very Trumpian, and that is, look, use the leverage you have in Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis the Russians and separate the Russians from China. Make it, you know, make it in the Russia's interest to cut themselves off or decouple from China, as it were, to some degree. Um, start using the allure of American power, American economics, you know, American, the, the American market and so forth, and our, our alliances worldwide. Start leveraging our assets instead of, instead of letting them wither away through bad policy or, or, uh, or just ignoring them. So it makes all the difference who's in, who's in power. And what's the message the U.S. needs to be sending China? It's the same message that Trump sent China. Look, you no longer get to compete in the world uh, on, on uh, unequivocal terms. We're going to compete with you everywhere. We're not going to compete with you economically, but we're going to compete with you culturally, militarily, and we're going to defend our allies. And that's very, very important. James Gorey, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. It looks like Trump-era China tariffs are here to stay. U.S. Commerce Secretary Raimondo said Tuesday she doesn't expect any changes anytime soon. That's until the U.S. Trade Representative's office completes its review of the limits to see if they're effective. Trump slapped tariffs on thousands of Chinese imports back in 2018 and 2019, worth a hefty $370 billion at the time. The move came after an investigation found that China was coercing U.S. companies to hand over sensitive tech secrets in order to do business there. Raimondo was also quick to point out that, quote, China's practices of subsidizing their businesses have hurt U.S. workers, adding the U.S. needs to level the playing field. Just last week, Raimondo criticized Beijing's various new restrictions on U.S. businesses operating in China. On the other hand, the Chinese Commerce Minister recently called Trump's tariffs on China discriminatory when he met with Raimondo in Beijing. 
Bad news for Apple from China. Beijing is reportedly ordering its state officials not to use iPhones for work. The directive applies to other foreign branch devices as well. But some insiders told our reporters that it's more of an unwritten ban on the U.S. tech giant. Why would Beijing opt for a off-the-record order amid the ongoing debate over U.S.-China decoupling? Let's zoom in iPhones and other foreign-branded devices will soon be off-limits for Chinese state agencies. Staff also won't be allowed to bring them into the office. According to the Wall Street Journal on Wednesday, the instructions were recently given to agency staff in China. But how were they issued? According to NTD correspondents, staff at some ministries or commissions in China receive them verbally, either via phone calls or in meetings. The ban is not outlined in any formal documents. A state employee in eastern China also described an established but undocumented ban on using foreign-branded cell phones like Apple for work purposes. In Shenzhen, a staff member said state employees can't bring foreign phones to important meetings, noting these restrictions are enforced verbally without official documents. Some workers reportedly keep two phones, an Apple iPhone for private use and a Huawei phone for work purposes. A state staff member in Beijing described a similar situation that all civil servants, including neighborhood committee staff, are blocked from using iPhones, but restrictions on other foreign brands remain unclear. There was no immediate response from Chinese officials or Apple. This isn't the first time that China has taken measures against foreign technologies. Back in 2021, officials and state workers in China were banned from driving Tesla cars near government compounds. Last year, Beijing ordered its agencies and state-backed firms to replace foreign-branded personal computers with domestic ones within two years. Beijing's recent move to restrict iPhones is also similar to some bans imposed by the U.S. Citing national security risks, the U.S. has been banning Chinese smartphone maker Huawei and the short video platform TikTok, owned by China's ByteDance, in various capacities. Washington and its Western allies are also blocking China from accessing advanced chips. Investors are steering clear of China right now, so much that BlackRock is pulling the plug on its China fund. The investment management giant announced the news in a Tuesday letter to shareholders, saying it would shut down its China Flexible Equity Fund in November. The fund has had a six-year run, but has only totaled over $22 million in assets since 2017. Its chair explained the closure comes due to a poor forecast for future investment in the fund. She also cited that the upkeep costs for the small fund would go against what's best for investors. The decision leaves current shareholders with a few options. They can opt to transfer their investments to another BlackRock fund, cash in before the fund's November 7th shutdown date, or have their holdings automatically redeemed when the fund closes. The shutdown arrives on the backdrop of a tense China investment climate. The firm faced a U.S. probe in August, exploring national security concerns over investments in certain Chinese entities. That investigation led financial giants to expect tighter regulation on foreign investment, especially after July, when the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party accused BlackRock of funding Chinese companies that harm American interests. President Biden also signed an executive order last month, limiting American investment in Beijing's technology industry. Another big story to look out for, a two-way street getting lined up alongside talks of a U.S. and China decoupling. China started decoupling industries, finances, banks. They've recently delisted some of their largest stocks off the New York Stock Exchange. 
From a new counterintelligence law to policies targeting foreign firms through fines and raids, how determined is China to become self-sufficient from the West? China is driving decoupling from China uh, as much as anybody in the world. But as China separates itself from the West, can Beijing keep its economy stable? You have to look at decoupling as a very serious thing. So is it going to get down to the good guys uh, versus the bad guys? And what would the entangling really cost? China has a bunch of friends that it paid for. So when China doesn't have money, it will, it will lose its friends. Stay tuned for more coming up tomorrow on China in Focus. But coming up today, amid growing tensions with Washington, can China's economy manage without the West? And what key strategies should the U.S. embrace as officials battle with Beijing on the economy, diplomacy, the military and the ideological arena? American Thought Leaders host Yanya Kellogg spoke to Jonathan Ward, a China scholar, founder of the Atlas Organization and author of The Decisive Decade, American Grand Strategy for Triumph over China for details. More after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Does China depend more on the U.S. or is it the other way around? The world's top two superpowers have come to see their economic links to each other a risk. What would it take for the U.S. to outmaneuver the Chinese Communist Party? American Thought Leaders host Yania Kellick sat down with Jonathan Ward, a China scholar, founder of the Atlas Organization and author of The Decisive Decade, American Grand Strategy for Triumph over China, for more. I have really, really enjoyed reading your book. Congratulations on a book that is, you know, trying to outline a strategy for how to deal with the Chinese Communist Party. Um, tall order. <laughs> um, and you, you bring a lot of different pieces of the puzzle together in a way I haven't seen before, and I'm very excited to talk about it. Before we go there, you talk a little bit about ideas as being one of the realms of uh, competition right, or, or perhaps even warfare. Um, and you use these quotes at the beginning of that ideas chapter. You, you mentioned Bono actually said that America is one of the greatest ideas in human history. Like that's how it's viewed from the outside. I don't know what year that was. It was a little while back. And then also you said this, be the America that Hong Kong thinks you are. Hmm, interesting. So what, what prompted you to, to use these quotes to lead off this chapter? Sure, so the book is broken into the classical arenas of Western grand strategy, so diplomacy, information, military, and economics. And initially I was basically gonna focus on economics and military, I mean, the two most important uh, strategic arenas for this contest. Um, but eventually I thought, you know, why not do the whole thing and include the arena of ideas, which became the most challenging part to write, and in many ways the most exciting part to write. Um, and I set, I set it up with the two quotes, one from Bono, the Irish uh, singer and leader of the band U2, uh, which was the first CD I ever owned as a child. And he had this beautiful quote from, that I remember from many years ago. He said, America is an idea. It is one of the greatest ideas in human history. That's how we see you in the outside world. And then something I saw on Twitter during the Hong Kong 
you know, uprisings in 2019 where it said, be the America that Hong Kong thinks you are with pictures of students waving the US flag. And part of that to me was uh, based on my own background, which is somewhat international. I spent about 11 years overseas between the travels I did learning foreign languages, uh, the PhD I did at Oxford studying China-India relations. And the future of the United States is not just important for us. It's important for the entire structure and well-being of really all of humanity. I mean, so much depends on the success of this nation. And I think our example um, resonates far beyond our own borders. It always has, and it still does. So I chose those two because I think they're contemporary, um, they're earnest, and I think we need to see how important uh, this country is to the world. It's not just for our own destiny, but really for the, for the whole picture. I mean, America has the geopolitical bedrock, the guarantor of human freedom, of prosperity. I mean, these sorts of things that I think we had a clearer idea of in the past when we understood what the free world was, what it meant when we understood what American leadership was. I mean, it's not just an economic contest. It's not just a military and diplomatic contest. It's a, a contest for what sorts of uh, beliefs and possibilities uh, lie ahead of humanity in the 21st century. And geopolitics to me is, um, you know, that, that's why it matters. It, it depends, it matters uh, who wins these contests when they arise. And in this case, um, you know, it matters a great deal that the United States and our allies continue uh, to be uh, the main force in, in um, you know, in power, uh, economic, military, and otherwise, and that we continue um, to lead in the 21st century. So we find ourselves at a very interesting time in history. And actually, you make the case in the book, you call it the decisive decade. This is the decisive decade, in your view. And I think you argue convincingly that, uh, to figure out how to deal with this geopolitical threat of the Chinese Communist Party, not just for the benefit of America, for the benefit of the free world as we know it. Some people out there believe that it's actually already over. That China's already won, that even that that ideological system is going to be dominant, right? And uh, so I guess I want you to come in from two sides here. One is, how do we know that's not the case, right? And number two, uh, why are you so sure that that we can turn it around? Right, and so um, I talk about this in my first book, China's Vision of Victory, which was probably the first book to explain the long-term strategies of the Chinese Communist Party in their own documents, and I'd been spending a lot of time with primary source for various reasons prior to writing that. Um, but here, you know, the point being that they have a set of time frames that to them are both symbolic but also planning time frames. You know, they have the symbolic date of 2049 when the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation would be complete. They have the symbolic date of 2021, which is past now, which is the centennial of the Communist Party of China. And they, you know, sort of see this in a time frame that goes out to the mid-century, and at that point, China has risen. But for me, um, you know, in analyzing this and realizing that for the United States to wake up and take action, it really matters that we use the 2020s. I mean, this will be a long-term contest. It will stretch out, uh, most likely, for um, the foreseeable future. But we have these advantages um, that we cannot relinquish. And I think that's one of the most important pieces here. I mean, the United States, um, particularly when it comes to economic power, which is I see it as the basis for the Communist Party's um, approach to uh, geopolitical power. I mean, they have a bunch of economic strategies that are designed to place themselves at the center of the world economy and to increase the world's dependency on China while at the same time reducing their dependency on the world to convert that ultimately into military power, diplomatic power, you know, as we're starting to witness, but then to get that going in such a way where they're an unstoppable force. But the U.S. is still, I mean, we've been the largest economic power for well over 100 years. And that is um, a great deal of our geopolitical history is defined by that, by having this preeminent position in the world economy 
when I was writing the first book, I had to continuously revise upwards the, the share of GDP that uh, the People's Republic of China was in relation to the US because it kept growing every year as I was writing the book. And today they're about 80% of our gross domestic product. So you know, we have to take um, this moment, particularly in the 2020s, to ensure that we're the largest economy in the world, that we have real economic strategies that will ensure that, guarantee it for the long-term future, and also to rebuild peace through strength, which is dependent on economic power. That's how we've been able to win wars in the past when we're forced to fight them and to maintain peace when we're able to do so, which is our preference. Um, and also to have the diplomatic structure of the world be one that is heavily in favor of the US, um, our allies, the other democracies in the world, and one that's essentially um, you know, not going to be um, overcome by, by you know, Russia and China at this point. I mean, there is a bit of a, an axis here of authoritarian states. So, so we have all these advantages today, but we're losing them. I mean, we're watching our p position in the world economy be challenged in meaningful ways across strategic industries, critical technologies, global markets. Um, you know, it's not guaranteed unless we have real strategies to back it up. And in the 2020s, if we're able to cement um, our most important positions, if we're able to uh, utilize the what's coming in, in economic history, which is uh, Industry 4.0, which will create new productivity um, increases, new industries, all sorts of things that could be a major boon for the US and the alliance system. If we're able to do all that in this decade um, and you know get that started, get a real grand strategy in motion, I think we will be in a much better position um, for as long as this contest goes on. So we have to take the moment that we have. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocusntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.